Kevin Steinberg, and you're listening to Frankie Kev. This is the Everyday Hero series, where I talk to people who have faced one or even more of many life's challenges. We talk about what happened, how they got through it, and what they did to survive and maybe even thrive. My guest today is an all-around entertainer. She's a pioneer female stand-up comedian, has many TV, film, and radio credits, is a character voiceover artist, most notably on Care Bears and Elf Tales, and has a lounge act where she sings jazz and American standards. However, on today's episode, I'm still here and so is my hair, she's here to share about surviving breast cancer not once, but twice. She discusses her grueling ordeal of having a lumpectomy, an aggressive chemotherapy regimen, and radiation. She lost all her hair, had lymphedema, and went through chemically-induced menopause as a result. She ended up writing about her experience in a memoir titled I'm Still Here and So Is My Hair, and became a keynote speaker, published writer, and was invited to give two TED Talks. She's tough, she's candid, and she's very funny. Please welcome my very special guest, Marla Lakofsky. Marla Lakofsky, welcome to Frankly Cab. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. So where were you when you discovered that you had something or something was up? In my bedroom in Los Angeles. I had moved to Los Angeles in 1990, and it was 1998. I had just come home from waitressing at a Hollywood event, went home, and I felt good, and I thought, I'm going to do my laundry. And I started to separate the laundry in what I call the apartheid fashion, darks in one pile and whites in the other. And as I was leaning over the pile, uh, my right breast slipped out of the armhole. Yes, that means I have very long breasts. (laughs) So I picked it up, got a garden hose retractor and put it back into my undershirt and felt this lump in the upper right quadrant of my breast area, higher up than my breast. So at the time, I thought it was a lymph node. Mm. I thought maybe my mononucleosis had come back. I thought maybe I had a lipoma, and it was very small, but because, you know, you have fatty tissue connecting to things, so there was a bit of a lump. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be really responsible. I left a message at night for my GP internist, who happened to be very good. I was lucky to find him. And I just left a message saying I have a lump above my breast and I know I had a mammo last month and I know I had a physical exam, but I have not I thought I'd let you know. He called me the next morning and he told me to come in and I did. A mammogram or had you just had one or? He wanted me to come in. I did just have one a month before. They didn't find anything. Everything was negative and fine. And he said, well, come in because I want to see it and feel it for myself. So he felt it and he said, no, this isn't a lymph node. I want you to have a mammogram Mm -hmm. back at Cedars-Sinai. I said, but I just did one. He said, just call them and book another appointment and then let me know what they say. And he wasn't alarmed or anything, but he's thorough. He's not the type to say, let's just wait three months. Mm -hmm. So I got an appointment miraculously, like in two days, and I went there and I had a very seasoned technician by the name of Louise. She said, show me where the lump is. And I showed her 
And she says, yeah, I feel it too. And she put a little sticker on it. She put me in the Mamo machine, which I like to call the panini maker. <laughs> and they want to know, do you want some extra heat on that? Yeah, put it in for an extra minute. Yeah, it'll come out better. So um, she did. And she said, you know, it came back negative. I don't want you to go home. I feel uncomfortable about this because I feel it and nothing's showing up. So if it's all right with you, I want to schedule you to have an ultrasound. Pardon okay? me for, for a moment. Is that pretty common that a, a woman will find something or the doctor will, but the mammogram shows nothing? I can't say statistically, but I would say in personal experience, it's common for me. And it is common for a section of women who have dense breasts. And what happens is as you get older, and mm -hmm. I mean 40, mm -hmm. even 35, you can develop dense breasts. You can develop them earlier than that. But it's hard for mammograms to be accurate with dense breasts. And I know in California that they made it a requirement, at least last time I spoke to my oncologist there, that they had to have an ultrasound with the mammogram as a pair of tests, so not an exception. So they can see more and, and ultrasounds don't even have radiation. So it's a safer test. So because of my history, I always have an ultrasound with a mammogram because it's more thorough and it sees things that the mammo doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so when I was told that she wanted to do an ultrasound and she said, you have to call your GP and get this okayed. So I called him and he, she said, there's not an opening right now. Can you go home and we'll call you and you'll come back. You live close by. And I said, sure. So I, so I made my way through the parking lot and I heard a voice screaming out, there's an appointment open right now for you. Will you please come back? And I said, this is amazing. She said, I know that I got it so fast. I said, no, that you could pronounce my last name so well. <laughs> I went back, did the ultrasound, and in came a radiologist. And he said, we found your lump to be slightly suspicious. And I think that you should have a biopsy. Uh, I'm going to call your GP for you. And he's going to set up an appointment with a surgeon. And you're going to go see the search. And I said, okay. And by the time I got home, phone rang. It was my GP calling me saying, I've got an appointment with you with not only one of the best surgeons, but he's a nice guy. I said, well, nice is one of my requirements. So I got the appointment and he saw me and he said, yeah, I think it's slightly suspicious too. And you have choices. You can get a needle biopsy. We can observe it and do a scan every three months, or we can remove it. Mm -hmm. I do it with a local anesthetic, no general anesthetic. I said, and you'll walk off the table and we'll have a totally conclusive answer. I said, that's what I want. I want totally conclusive. I want to hear what you're saying. So that's what I did. And I got that Two weeks later, I would have gotten sooner, but he went on vacation. He said, don't worry about it. There's not a lot that's going to change with your cancer in a two-week period. So uh, it was in the hospital and everything. It was in an actual operating room. There was one nurse there. I was up for the party. They just put a curtain between my neck and my breast. Right. He did it, and he spoke to me. We have to take out more. He says, we need a wider margin. So he just went in and cut out more, and he said, if you feel anything, let me know. And I said, I feel something, because I started to feel the cutting. And uh, he gave me more 
needles into the tissue and then I didn't feel a thing. And then that was it. He sewed me up and he said, I'll call you as soon as I can with the result. I think it was less than a week, actually. Very nice. He called me after hours and he said, Marla, I'm sorry to tell you, but it's malignant, actually. What you type need of cancer was it? Invasive ductal carcinoma. Got it. And is that common? Is it for a woman who has breast cancer? Different types of breast cancer, more than most people understand. There's about, there could be eight different types, if not 10. And uh, it's not, it's not the favorite one. Um, but do you know what stage it was? So mine was small. It was so Mm. small. It was Mm -hmm. six millimeters, which is really small, sometimes being a different size once they cut it out. And then there's other characteristics. So mine ended up being seven out of nine. So that was an intermediate to high grade. The next stage that decides what stage it is, is location of metastases. Mm -hmm. And so I needed a second operation to remove part of my lymph nodes to see see if it was there. there. Right. Uh Uh So that was a general anesthetic. And that was the one where I called my parents and I said, come in. If you're going to visit, this is the time to come. So um, they came and the doctor put me under. And when I woke up, I had a drain here and a drain there. And you were full of tubes and stuff. And um, long story short, they got one lymph node that was positive. And they said it was a less than 3% chance that a tumor your size would have cancer in that lymph node. And in the textbooks, it says the same thing. Everything that happened to me was less than 3% of the population would have this happen. And it happened. And so that meant that I had to have chemotherapy. Did you also have to have surgery and radiation? I had the lump removed in the lumpectomy in the first place. (laughs) They felt that the margins were close, almost too close, is what I soon found out. And so because it was in the lymph nodes, that was the deciding factor to have chemotherapy and the traditional treatment without the chemotherapy would be radiation after the removal of the lump. So I was going to have radiation anyways, but now this changed everything and I had to find an oncologist to decide what kind of chemotherapy and to take over the case from there. And I also had to find a, radi- a radiologist oncologist. Okay, can I back up one second and ask yeah. you something? You didn't have to get a vasectomy? I had offered the surgeon if he needed to take off my breast. I was okay with that at the time, which is strange yeah. because if it happened now, I'd say no. Right. So. Uh, He said, honestly, with the size and we think we got it all and we're going to give you such strong chemo that I think it's going to be okay. So we don't have to go back in. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay. Was there a history of cancer, breast cancer in your family at all? My my aunt, my mama's middle sister, Mm -hmm. had breast cancer and that was kept like a secret in the family. So I didn't know about it until until I actually wanted to go on the birth control pill, not for sex, but to help me with my painful period. And it was brought up by the doctor. You know, your aunt had a bad reaction and she got breast cancer from the early birth control pills giving women cancer. So that wasn't good. She had it and unfortunately 
she died from it because it kept spreading over the years to mm -hmm. different parts. She ended up with it being in her stomach, but the doctors say breast cancer doesn't spread to the stomach. I said, well, all I can tell you is I know someone who had it in their stomach and then it went to their brain and she died. My other aunt, also maternal aunt, mm -hmm. um, she got it later on in life and mm -hmm. just had a lumpectomy and radiation. So that's all I know. But I find it, I'm going to say this because I'm going to say it because it's my experience. It's not the deciding factor for things. And even though, you know, I'm telling you, in my time, mm -hmm. they were only considering immediate family if you had to have cancer. It had to be your immediate family. Now they're considering aunts and grandmothers and stuff. The medical outlook changes constantly. I'm going to say this because I want to skip a little bit to mm -hmm. when I had it a second time. I got an extensive genetics test that covered 29 different chromosomes mm. and I'm not a carrier. Yet I had it twice and recurring. Wow. Interesting. And I'm not a carrier. So it didn't yeah. matter that my aunts had it. Yeah. Because it didn't have a deciding factor on me. So you had the, you had the lumpectomy, but the margins were really close. So they're suggesting chemo for you and an aggressive chemo, correct? Correct. And that was the adriamycin and the cytoxin four cycles. I remember talking to my oncologist and saying, why am I getting four cycles when my friend's mother is getting six cycles? Like, give me six because, you know, I want to get this. And yeah. once and for all, and he said, you would die if I gave you six of this. He said, it's too strong. He said, this is a very strong stuff I'm going to give you because you have a an aggressive type of cancer. Mm. Uh, and it's not just that it's invasive ductal carcinoma, but it, it's the rate of my proliferation of the cells scored really high. That's a deciding factor as well. You can have everybody having the same type of invasive ductal carcinoma, but if their cells are dividing faster, that's an important feature. Right. They say you can have the same cancer, but it's different in every person. Exactly. So now with your chemo, when you say that you had four cycles, does that mean you have your your chemo uh, one day, one week, and then you're off the next week? How does it go? Mine worked, and as you said, everybody's different. But mine worked with, uh, I have it one day and then I wait three weeks. And then I have it another day and then I wait three weeks. So I had... So it's like, almost like four, four months, four cycles is four months because the drugs that they're putting in your body are so strong, correct? They're so strong. And it was a really violent reaction for me. It was not a walk in the park. So, yeah. I was around at this time. Remind me and the people listening, I mean, what what what, ha what happened? What was your reaction like? First, it was that I wanted to I wanted to prepare myself for it. So, when he said I had to have chemotherapy, I started to read up on mm -hmm. everything. So, I I got a great book called Dr. Susan Loves Breast Book, and it keeps getting revised and there's either version 6 or 7 out there. It's a fantastic book. I also decided to prepare my body and my mind for what's ahead by reading everything I could. Now, we didn't have internet then, so I had to get books and read articles. And there was in the Los Angeles Times an ongoing column of a woman going through breast cancer treatments. And I was reading it and it was she was being really honest, which I like. And it was really helping me prepare for it. I thought then that she's luckier than me because she's in a house with a full family mm -hmm. and whatever goes on she's going to have support i was living alone 
in Los Angeles in a different city. And I didn't have the same reaction. But the one thing I noticed is she was telling the truth. Everywhere else I was looking, it was saying, just be positive, just be positive. I'm a realist. That doesn't work for me. Knowing her woes and problems helped prepare me. Mm -hmm. So I knew then I'm going to write something from my point of view of a single woman going through it alone with some assistance now and then, uh, but living alone. And I started my memoir then. That's why I started in case somebody reads it, they're going to know what's exactly going to happen under my circumstances so they can relate to it and things aren't peachy so keen. So while, while you were going through this, your family is back in Toronto and you're, you're not in a relationship at this point or where are your friends and uh, your, who's your support system? I didn't have a big support system. Uh, I had my family long distance. Mm -hmm. I spoke to my sister Elaine a lot and she's saying, so what was the uh, biopsy? It went okay, right? I said, Elaine, it's positive. Positive like it went okay. I said, no, positive like I've got cancer. What? Uh, Lisa, go to the other room. You know, the kids have to leave the house for a second while she talks to me. So she was calling all the time and that was great. And she actually came in almost every weekend for the chemos. So she flew in for the chemo. So I had somebody. So that really helped. And, uh, but I did start to, I had a wonderful affair with this beautiful Brazilian woman that year. And it was passionate and hot and you actually met her. It was a wonderful time in my life. And then she went back to Brazil for the rest of her life. And it gave me the confidence to actually ask another woman out. And this woman lived in Oregon and she was in town visiting her family. And I gave her my phone number and Mm -hmm. and, uh, we started dating. And so she went back home and, And that was that. And when I knew I was going to have chemotherapy, I called her and let her know. And she started to come and visit. And then we started to resume the relationship. So if you're asking me, what was it like having chemotherapy? Did you want me to go back to that question? (laughs) Because I was like, I mean, what, what was your reaction and how did you deal with it? My reaction, it was just very hard. I was very nauseous and I was told I would be nauseous. I was told I may vomit and that I should take the pill Zofran and we're going to give you them and never miss a pill. But I was still nauseous. I still threw up. And all I thought is, if I don't take this pill, I'm going to be worse off than the way I am now. But I had a feeling that the pill was making me more nauseous because I wasn't feeling good. It also threw off my balance and equilibrium. So it was hard for me to walk. So I had to walk very gingerly, like I was trying to hold myself a certain level. And so every time I stepped off a curb, it threw off my balance again. So I started to take walks to settle my stomach and I had to walk on the road, not on the sidewalk. So I didn't have to go up and down a curb. And I walked for miles and miles and miles because it settled my stomach, but nothing much settled it. You know, that was on a good day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually after the chemotherapy for me, the next two days were gruesome. So I usually had them on Thursday and Friday and Saturday were horrible. And as you know, um, 
after the first infusion of the chemo, you have a bag of steroids. I had a bag of steroids and I, I actually took a hike right after chemo, but it doesn't last. I moved furniture. I lifted couches. I was doing things that Superman could do, but it doesn't last long. And at least for me, I plummeted fast and it was gruesome. And what I also noticed, every treatment, the recovery got longer and longer mm. so that by the time I was recovering. The next day was the next treatment. So I think it was the third treatment. I called the doctor and I said, I'm not coming in. I'm not having any more chemotherapy. I quit. And he was great. And he said, um, just come in and talk to me. I want to hear what you have to say. And my sister happened to be in then and she drove me in to the treatment place where the doctor is. And, um, which is the Tower of Hematology, Dr. Decker. And he sat and talked with me and I was in very bad shape. And he just said, you've come so far, you're young and healthy. Mm -hmm. This is the time to complete it because if you don't complete it, it won't have the same effect. You need to complete this to have a survival, you know, rate to, because we, we believe you will survive this. Yeah. And if you don't, I said, if, if I don't take this, what will happen? He said, I'm not sure you would live past five years. And I said, okay. He says, I'll be with you every step of the way. So he said that you, you wanted to stop what after three, three cycles? It was, I would think it was the third one yeah. that I, that I wasn't willing to do because I, because I had to have time to get closer and closer to mm -hmm. the day to return. Mm -hmm. So it must've been the third one because he said, you know, just do this. And then there's just one more left, just one more left. I'll be with you every step of the way. You can call me. We'll bring you in. We'll take care of you. And I just felt he's got my back. So I did it. That's pretty amazing. I mean, sometimes we find it, you know, within ourselves. And sometimes it's someone else who talks us into it. And he helped me together because when you're feeling like you're dying anyways from the mm -hmm. treatments, mm -hmm. which is the thing, you know, you know, the side effects are, you know, you, you lose your hair, you get nauseous, you get mouth sores, anal sores, bleeding gums, bleeding nose, you know, your body is slowly dissolving and you lose your hair except on my arms, which I wanted to have bald arms because I have hairy arms. And I found out that no, that wasn't going to happen. Oh, thanks a lot. And um, I just never felt like I wanted to die all the time because it was so horrible. Yeah. And there was such a small window of feeling decent and I couldn't eat anything. And I, well, I was not losing weight. I was blowing up. Pull it together and, and get through it. And also what he said that if you don't do it, you're not going to be living five years. Yeah. That, that got me to mm. keep going with the chemo. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And then after the chemo, you had radiation, right? Right. And I had radiation for the standard six weeks. It's usually six weeks for many people. And then what was your reaction to that? Did you have a sunburn or? First, I had a tan and I looked really good. I, I had a tan through the whole treatment because uh, the side effects of the treatment gave you darker skin. So I looked really good. <laughs> and I looked good bald as it happens. My skin started to burn. Not as bad as other people who I became friends with in the treatment rooms and they had to stop bad enough that it hurt like hell. But uh, I got through it. You know, like I said, there was worse reactions and mine was in between. So I got through that. I didn't feel as fatigued as the pamphlets say. And one of the side effects is that you may go into 
menopause, which is mm -hmm. called chemically induced menopause. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. And having that happened is like, as Dr. Decker says, driving your car into a brick wall at 40 miles an hour, because your body usually takes years to go into menopause, years, you mm -hmm. know, and that's maybe after 50 or 60, but yours were doing it with the chemotherapy. And it was so sudden that I was having these massive hot flashes that weren't cute, weren't funny. It was like I was drenched. I was chilled. I was drenched. I was chilled. And you feel sick to your stomach, too. It was like it was a mess. My whole body was a mess. So everything was really hard to handle. And with that comes depression hmm. because depression can happen with menopause. And everything was happening all at the same time. And I became was crying all the time. I, it was hard to make decisions. It, it wasn't. The cancer was all the side effects of everything was affecting my rationale. Everything was not going well. So I needed help. So how did you get through all of that? I got through it by um, contacting a wonderful organization actually called the Rhonda Fleming Man Comprehensive Cancer Center and resource center at UCLA. When my mom came in to visit, she came with me. And the amazing thing is that it, it was created and established in 1994. And my first cancer was in 1998. So lucky me, it was put in place four years before I had cancer. And it was the most amazing medical experience. So I went there. My mom came with me. You sit in a room and all the specialists come to you. You don't have to schlep here, there, or anywhere. And so first I had a nurse practitioner come in. So I'd already had my operation. Mm -hmm. I'd already been dealing with chemotherapy. Maybe I had one more left. I'm not sure at the time. And she examined me and understood my stage because she was a cancer nurse practitioner. And then a nutritionist came in and then a physiotherapist came in to help me with my lymphedema in my right arm that happens with removing lymph nodes. And then a therapist, a mental health therapist came in. Lymphedema. Explain that. That's when your lymphatic system isn't functioning properly due to disease or removal of the lymphatic system. And that happened in my right underarm. And so it happens that fluid builds up in the limb. Mm -hmm. And Is this when so, people have to wear a special sleeve when they fly? That's correct. Got it. So my swelling is between my shoulder and my elbow. And, the, and my back and mm. part of my back. So in Toronto here, when they measure you, I don't qualify for lymphedema here because they only measure from the elbow to the finger. And I said, but that's not where it is. But that's how we do it. And I said, but here, what do you think this bag of fluid is over here? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, like, you know, wake up, smell the coffee. Hello. And they just, everything's very rigid here. Anyways. But this is uh, amazing. I mean, you have breast cancer, you go through surgery, you go through this aggressive chemo, and then six, and six weeks of radiation, you end up having early stage menopause, you have depression, you have lymphedema, and you're making it through all of this. That, that's amazing. I have a lot of stamina. I wouldn't say that I love a challenge. I'm not one of those people that seek out challenges. I, I like an easier life. Mm -hmm. But I mean, my trainer says, you know, if they cut off your leg, you'd still try to finish the marathon. You're just bloody determined. So 
I was just determined to get through it it just by putting one foot in front of the other. It's mm -hmm. just, and believe me, there were days that I just, when I read over my memoir, I, I see what I wrote to people. I used to write, they used to say, is there anything I can bring you? And I had said, a gun, I need to kill myself. I can't do this anymore. And okay. I thought, oh my God, I said this to so many people. <laughs> and of course, their response is, oh, well, uh, okay, uh, I'll try to bring you some bread because the only thing I could eat was bread, bread and butter. You know, you cut out bread to keep your body thin, and suddenly the only thing I could eat was what? Women who are going through morning sickness can bread and butter. But look, I mean, yeah, we feel that way and we say that. You didn't do that, and you kept going. And even if it was other people who kept you going, like you say, this this nurse or this doctor had inf influence on you. And right now you're talking about this uh, incredible medical center that you went to. So oh, that was incredible because yeah. that's right. I, I met, the nurse practitioner was amazing because I was getting heavier and heavier and I was upset about that too. Uh, she said, I need you to start walking. It's going to help your mental status. It'll help you physically, but it'll help you mentally. And I said, I don't wanna walk. I don't want anyone to see me. I'm undesirable. I'm ugly now. I have no reason to live. And so she said what I call the magic word. And she said, then don't do it for you, Marla. Do it for me. And that works for Marla Lukowski. People pleaser. <laughs> Well, that's good. See, something that worked. But you did find it within yourself because I love this story about that um, woman when she lost her hair and you were wearing a, a scarf on your head. And this, this woman, you, you know, you turned around and what these doctors were doing for you, you were able to do for another cancer patient. Tell, tell the story, please. Yeah, I love that story. Yeah. Uh, this was during the time of radiation. Yeah. And I've already been through a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, when you sit in a room for six weeks every day at the same time, you get to be friendly with the other people. And but there was there was a new woman there who came with her husband and she had a scarf on her head and I had a scarf on my head and she was being stoic but teary eyed. and. Before they do the radiation, at least at Cedar sinai at the time, they had to take a Polaroid. And she said, no, 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 I'm too ugly. I, I don't want anyone to see me, no, please, no. And they said, if you don't let us take the Polaroid, we can't start your treatment. And they left the room to try to recalibrate what they were going to do, because it was her turn. I felt very bad for her. And I understood what she was feeling to some extent, because I'm not her. But I know what it's like to feel like you're ugly and you're undesirable. Mm -hmm. So I went over to her and I kneeled down in front of her and I said, I heard what you said about not wanting the picture because you feel undesirable and feel ugly. And I said, I'm bald underneath this, just like you. And I took off my scarf and I said, see, and I said, and I like women and you are a beautiful woman. And I don't say that to everybody, but you are a beautiful woman. And if you let them take your picture, you can start your treatments right away. And the sooner you start them, the sooner you'll get to go home and feel better. And she stopped crying and, and she said, okay, I'll let you take my picture. And they took the picture and they whisked her in. I didn't know much about what happened afterwards until I had a total meltdown during one of my radiation sessions when they come in and say, so how are you doing today, Marla? I said, I'm lousy. I'm awful. 
I have no purpose in life. I've lost my friends. I've lost my job. I've lost my agent. I've lost anything. All I do is sit at home and work in a fresh fish market part-time and I stink of tilapia. And he said, well, I think you have a purpose in life. And I said, like what? And then I started to cry and he brought over a box of Kleenex. He said, I think one of your purposes is you help people. He said, like who? <laughs> How do you know all of this? <laughs> because the staff isn't in that room. Mm-hmm. And he said, we have cameras and microphones in there. Wow. I said, you're kidding. He says, we know and see everything that goes on in there. And I said, if I knew that, I would have worn lipstick. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that sometimes we can't find it within ourselves to pull it together. But when we see someone else struggling, we're there. We're a, we're, we're a champion for them. So we, we do have it in us. You do have it in you. Well, I do. Uh, you know, some people are apathetic mm. in their journeys and some people are empathetic. I'm empathetic. I, I feel, as long as mm. people are nice, I feel people's pain. <laughs> I feel for them. I like, I really feel it. You know, we were all in the same boat in that room. And I just mm. thought, mm-hmm. you know, but, but the important thing is in that whole episode is that he was pointing out that I gave a moment in time to somebody else. Mm. And the very fact that he took the time in this tight schedule of radiation to talk to me that he was giving a moment of time to me to point out that I was giving a moment of time to somebody else and it was all helping each other. And that made me go home and write the story called One Moment in Time, which ended up getting published in several medical magazines and it ended up being a TED Talk as well. That's fantastic. And we'll we'll get to that shortly. I want to go back too to this uh, nurse practitioner who I believe, you know, got you to to walk. And she said you didn't want to walk and you weren't walking. And she said, at least do it for me. And you started walking. And I believe you started walking every day and so much so that you entered your first 5K marathon. Yeah, but (laughs) I didn't I didn't enter it right immediately then. It was years later when I finally moved back to Toronto. Uh, But the fact that I enjoyed walking and had built up that stamina during that difficult time. And I mean, I walked so much. I had blisters on my feet and because also your skin changes during the treatments of the chemotherapy and it made it thinner and finer skin. And so I had blisters on blisters, but I walked so far. I mean, and being outside stopped me from throwing up all the time. So uh, I just loved the walking and and it gave me the strength and I didn't have to be with anybody and I didn't have to put on any airs of I'm okay or anything. And and that, that feeling got me to also want to keep walking to the point where I did it. Well, I jogged a 5K. And this is also very real because I, I'm, I'm a cancer survivor as well. And, you know, we hear people speaking about going through cancer and how perfectly they did it and we read books and see people in talk shows and but this is very honest i mean it is hard there is a struggle sometimes we do want to give up sometimes we want to say fuck it give me the gun but we get through it somehow some way either somebody outside of ourselves or something within ourselves we get through it you're still here i'm still here that's right and in fact when i ended up turning my journey into a one-woman show, keynote speaking, mm-hmm. um, I would get letters from cancer sufferers, mm-hmm. not always survivors, saying, 
I am so tired of going to see speakers talking about just being positive. It doesn't work for me. You're the first real person I've heard. You are helping me. Mm. And that was so important to me because realism helped me. And it, right. it doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. Uh, anytime my sister say, I have a friend who's got breast cancer. Would you be willing to talk to her? I said, <laughs> and I said, sure. Our cousin has it or this has it or that has it. I'll be happy to talk to them. But I tell them, but they're not going to want to talk to me because odds are by now they've selected the people that they want to talk to. Mm-hmm. And odds are there are people who just are telling them nothing bad's going to happen. Just be positive and everything's going to work out. And I'm telling you, it's true. Nine out of 10. I can't even think of the one. So I'm going to say 10 out of 10 of the people that I've been in subtle contact with didn't want to know anything, didn't want to read anything, didn't want to educate themselves on anything, just wanted to do what the doctor said. And the doctors here in Canada often say, do not go on the internet and do not read anything. Instead of saying, read from good sources, <laughs> read from the Mayo Clinic, yeah. you know, yeah. read from Tuft University. They don't say that, say don't read anything. And in LA, my doctor said, read, read up. We want you to be a partner in your treatment. Mm-hmm. So I had excellent questions. And whenever I came in with questions, they said, great question, Marla. We're actually learning with you. We're learning from you. I had questions here for my second breast cancer. They said, we don't like that you have questions. Just do as you're told. And it was like, this isn't a good place for me. I remember at the time I was living out of out of town and I came back a couple of times during your treatments. And then I ended mm. up moving back here. So I got to see you quite a bit. And I saw someone who was really struggling, who was having a really tough time with just walking, with just getting up every day. I didn't know how to, to help you. I just knew how to, to be there. And what could I do? You lost your hair. But it was incredible. Somehow you turn a corner and then I see... Marla is back. My old friend is back. Somehow, all of that shit that's in your body and everything that they're doing to you, body is just miraculous. We heal. Obviously, we, we've, we're a different person because we've had this journey and we've learned so much about ourselves and we, we're so much stronger. But we returned to ourselves and, and you did. It was amazing. Well, it took time. It took a long time. And I remember every step of the way, even when the cloud would lift in between chemo treatments, uh, somebody would say something and I'd I'd criticize what they said or was debating the accuracy of what they said. And they went, she's back. (laughs) So there we go. Yeah, you enjoyed me being sick. Well, I'm back. All right, you're back. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. Now, was the impetus for you to write about cancer and write about your journey? And, you know, you wrote for medical journals. You you wrote these essays and you gave TED Talks. And then you wrote this memoir that became a one-woman show. I'm still here and so is my hair. I love that title. And you became a keynote speaker. This was just amazing. So you you had you know this career from being a stand-up, from being an actress, from being a voiceover artist. You pulled from that to be able to give these these talks. So fill us in on that. That's exactly it. I pulled from every area where I was a professional, and it made me an 
excellent keynote speaker, mm. performer for my own show. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I wanted to get back to something. So I hope you hold your thought on that because it, it's about you. Mm. Because I remember when you were visiting me mm-hmm. and you came one time that I was in very bad, yeah, very bad straits. So that I was crying. I was on the floor. I couldn't get up. And you didn't know how to help me. So you actually, you, you said you have to go back to that therapy group because one of the things about the Rhonda Fleming Man Cancer Center is it also offered support groups mm-hmm. for every type of cancer, every stage of cancer. So I was actually in a group of stage two breast cancer. So we were all collaborating with each other and stuff. So you knew I was going there once a week when I was lying on the floor crying and wasn't making much sense and you wanted to help me. So you picked me up and you put me like over your back and you said, I am taking you to that therapy place right now. I'm driving to UCLA. I said, no, please don't. I begged you. I didn't like the group therapy. I loved my private therapist at the Ronda Fleming Man, which is also associated with the Revlon Clinic Cancer Center. It's one in the same almost at UCLA. And they they said, how do you feel, Mar- Marley? You're not talking in the sessions. How do you feel? And I saw a pamphlet on the table that said, do you feel lonely? Do you feel bad? Do you feel depressed? I went, I feel like this, this pamphlet. <laughs> and the one, and then the facilitator said, does anybody want to say something to what Marla just said? Yes, Sally. I just want to say to Marla that there's children starving in Africa and she has no right to feel bad. And I went, okay, then don't ask me. (laughs) And then the facilitator went, "Uh, Sally, that's not really the appropriate response. We were looking for Marla has a right. I said, no, don't bother. I don't have any rights. I'm that basic shit now. (laughs) No, no, Marla. And so then I went to my therapist down the hall and I told her what happened. She went, oh, no. She said, don't worry. You don't have to go back. We'll just make sure that you see me once a week, twice a week, if you need to. And But I have to say, this woman, I mean, we have to talk about Sherry Goldman, who was the nurse practitioner, who's also associated with the therapist, Carol Fred, saved my life. I am still in touch with her to this day. In fact, I called her when my second cancer came back two years ago. She was, again, extraordinarily helpful mm-hmm. and supportive, but she helped me get through it because other people were saying just be positive and just do this and just and she knew the shit she sure main thing was cancer patients so she knew every step i was going through she knew every drug i was going through and in fact i was in such a depression Hmm. not only was i struggling with things but i had this depressive state as well that she hooked me up with the ucla psychiatric department and i got to have many different psychiatrists treat me because they found this an opportunity to deal with somebody going through chemically induced menopause mm-hmm. induced depression while going through cancer treatments. This was like a case study for them. Mm-hmm. And they used me to practice on wow. and they tried different drugs on me and nothing worked. It wasn't a matter of that. There was not, no drug strong enough for depression to take away what I was feeling. I just needed to get healthier. I, I felt feelings of broken heart, rejection from a past girlfriend, uh, concerns of a current girlfriend, and, and, and things weren't working out right. But I got a lot of help through Carol Fred 
and in what she exposed me to. That's fantastic. So you had that as well. I mean, we, we find if it's a therapist or a, a therapy group or a fellow, you know, cancer patients, you know, we find that where we can get it. Do you remember lifting me up and I don't, saying you're going to take me? I, I don't. And thank you for reminding me. And I'm thankful that I did something other than just feeling helpless and, and watching you suffer. And I remember going, we used to hang out at Swingers and mm. we used to take, we used to go to different restaurants. And I remember you having these hot flashes and cold flashes and fanning yourself and sweating and putting on your jacket. And I mean, I'm a guy, I don't know what menopause right. is like to go through menopause. So on early, top of everything I mean, else. Yeah. I was right. 42. Also, yeah. I would go with you to these restaurants. Yeah. Also, what was happening, I would get nauseous. Mm -hmm. uh, the sights, the yeah. decorum, yes, the paintings. I would be with you and you'd be ordering food and your cousin sometimes was there. And I said, I have to wait for you outside. Take your time and eat. I'm going to throw up. I have to go outside. <laughs> I'll be fine on the curb. Don't worry about me. <laughs> I'll wait for you, like the dog. I'll wait for you. The dog tied up at the the, the the lamp post with the wa dish with water. <laughs> That's right. Because I was happy to be out. Yeah, but I just couldn't be near the smells of food or the sights of things, yeah. and that was ongoing for so long. That was months and months and months. Mind your body pulled it all back together and you had the wherewithal to then take your story and do something with it. So was that your own idea or did somebody else give you the idea? What got you writing about it? It was my idea because as I had earlier mentioned there was that woman who had that column in the LA Times talking about her experience. and. What bothered me is it was wonderful that she was being honest and graphic, and I liked that, mm -hmm. but she had a family. And I wanted to write a true account of what it's really like, at least for me, as I always qualify, and share that in hopes that it'll help somebody else because not everybody has family living with them. Not everybody is married. All the pamphlets in the cancer waiting rooms are for breast cancer is, this is what your husband should do to help like make the pamphlets not heterosexual and and open the door. And I needed to write this down. And I also thought, I'm only going to go through this once, I hope. And I want to keep a true account of it. So I wrote every day when I wasn't spinning out of control or throwing up. Mm. And there were days where I couldn't go near the monitor, mm. which you, I actually got the computer keyboard monitor from you, actually. Mm. I wrote as long as I wasn't getting dizzy and falling off the chair. And when I lost my hair, I was like the last day of, your hair will fall out between two and four weeks. I was at the four week mark and I went, my hair's not gonna fall out. I'm doing everything right. I'm the best cancer patient in the world. I kept thinking, I'm gonna be the superstar. And then one day the hair started to come out and I wrote the chapter on my hair coming out called oh, hair, hair today, gone tomorrow, something like that. And it was a true account. So if you read it, it's an actual present account. It's not in the past. It's, this is what's happening. And it was an amazing, terrifying, yet almost exciting thing because I've never seen my hair fall out like that, just hmm. in hmm. throws through my fingers. And it Close. was like in clumps and it was extraordinary. And then near the end, you don't end up looking good like you do. 
you end up having clumps of hair that won't come out in between bald spots. So I looked frightening, <laughs> frightening. <laughs> did you get me to shave your head or did you shave your head? <laughs> I went to a salon <laughs> where I had gone earlier to have my hair cut short, but now I went back to have these tufts shaved off. And when I walked in, I called them, I told them, I said, sure, come on in. I walked in and the gasps of the women in the chair, and I just, the heads turned and then the heads refused to look at me. And I just made an announcement. I said, I know that I look shocking. I'm having chemo treatments. This is what's happened. It's okay if you want to stare, I'd stare too. I wasn't attacked by a dog. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't near a gas oven and the flame came off. And uh, in five minutes after this buzz, I'm going to look good. So I sat down and they did the buzz and I put all the hair. I kept my hair. I kept the hair that fell out and I kept the hair that got buzzed off and I put in a baggie and I went home with it. And you look, you have great, thick, beautiful hair. Hair. I've lo- always loved your well, hair. I don't but really, but yeah. Surprisingly, or you used to, you looked beautiful. Bald. I did. I did because I don't actually have an even head, but for some reason, when I went bald, it suddenly didn't show the horns. So <laughs> that was amazing. But also, you you have these big, beautiful eyes, and that became your the focus. Fo- focus. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I looked really good. Yeah. Hand, bald, big yeah. eyes. Yeah. Yeah, it worked for me. Now, the writing, I mean, did you find that empowering, cathartic? Yeah, I found it cathartic. I found it empowering. It gave me a purpose every day because I lost my job. Mm-hmm. I lost my agent and I lost almost all of my friends. Uh, people didn't want to be around cancer people. I, they eventually said I didn't know how to deal with it, but they were some of them were mean. I mean, they never spoke to me again. Shocking. People don't understand. They think yeah. people rally around. Well, that's not always the case. Yeah. And it didn't happen to me. And the few people who I didn't expect to rally around, who was my boss at the time before I had to leave the job, and uh, Mark Miller, a comedian from my early uh, San Francisco mm-hmm. days, and um, other people in phone calls from Toronto and you. Um, mm-hmm. And while I was sitting in my apartment, if I bumped into neighbors, oh, I see you're going through chemotherapy. I say, I am. If there's anything I could do, well, yeah, so I, I could use some help with grocery shopping. You know, I would sometimes have like a bag of a sandwich outside my door. But what I actually wanted was for them to come in mm-hmm. and talk to me yes. and visit me because yes. I was lonely. Yeah. But nobody would come in. Nobody would talk to me. And it was a tough road. Mm -hmm. I I found that too. The first time I I had cancer is the first month. Everyone was there in the hospital. Everyone (laughs) came to visit me at home and then everyone goes back to their life. That's it. They did. They did. They did their duty, and then you're left alone to deal with your can, with your recovery or your, your treatment or whatever. It's like where'd the party go? <laughs> it's like a death. People come to the shiva. They come to the visitation, and then they're done with you. And then the hard part happens. I wonder if they feel awkward or they don't know what to say or that they're supposed to be respectful and give you your space so that you can do your your thing. I don't know. So, Kevin, that's why I put the memoir to speeches and shows of I'm Still Here and So Is My Hair because I tell people this is what you can say. Mm -hmm. 
And when I do these shows um, and I'm saying, don't say positive, mm. don't say chin up, don't say it'll get better, uh, say this, say, and I had a whole list of things that I didn't memorize for the sh show. I, I would say, uh, ask people how they feel. Yeah. Don't tell them how to feel and wait for the answer. Yeah. Ask them, what can I do for you? And be honest. And if yeah. they say, take them to Disneyland and you can't, don't say you will. There's nothing worse than being rejected and disappointed by a broken promise, especially when you're feeling lousy. And it's so important. Genuinely ask someone, how are you today? And let them answer and, and tell answer. you the truth. And don't feel like you have to say it. Any Fix it. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to say, oh, but you'll feel better tomorrow or cheer up. Just listen and either, you know, react to what they're telling you or, or you know, don't don't lie. And, but I guess that's how, how I don't know if it's the PC world or, or I guess it's just being uncomfortable or we don't know what to say. So we say something positive. The only thing I say to people who say, just be positive, I say I'm positively sure you shouldn't say that. My favorite word would be, I say this in my show, I say, Fuck off! and that's it. And then the audience goes, yay! <laughs> <laughs> now, journaling is amazing, but you didn't just write about it, then you got to talk about it. And that gave you something, something else because you weren't just writing it for yourself, you were able to help other people. I was hoping that somebody would read the memoir. I was mm -hmm. hoping one day it would get published. Mm -hmm. So when I got better, moved back to Toronto, I tried hard. I had somebody assist me and, and um, copy edit it and stuff. And they called the, you know, publishing companies and stuff. And it was a hard road. You, their uh, submission rules are very strict and I needed help with that. My brain was pretty fried. But uh, the response was, what an interesting way to approach cancer. We like this. We have our quota. We have our eight book quota for the year. Try again. But the interesting is when I tried with an American, I got a contract right away. And they said to get a lawyer. I got a lawyer to look over the contract. They sent some of the changes. That person in the States didn't like the lawyer and happened to have a past history with them. I don't know what happened. They went to the same university. Hmm. Something bad happened. She dumped the offer. So I almost had the book published and she was actually the first person I submitted to and almost had it done. But when I came back to Toronto, I was adjusting to being back in Toronto after being in LA for 10 years. And thank God I was in LA because it basically all those wonderful doctors, nurse practitioner, therapist, saved my life. I, I also want to say something about the therapist, Carol Fred, because I saw another therapist before her. And she actually said to me, one of the worst things you can say to anybody who's trying to get someone to listen to them, I've got patients who are much worse off than you. You've got nothing to complain about. That's it. I didn't realize this was a competition here. That's a terrible thing to say. Yeah, and she's a licensed therapist. <laughs> and I thought it's, all, it's you inappropriate. Yeah, you don't have that, that you know, comparison to make. You only know when to care, compare it with things that have happened in your life. That's it. So <laughs> I immediately said, I'm never seeing her again. I told Dr. Decker and I need to see somebody else. I'm going to try the UCLA because I met this woman there. And when I went back, I actually met Carol Fred when I was good because I, I 
I cased out the joint and met everybody. And I said, good thing is I'm probably never going to need to come back because I'm a really strong person and blah, blah, blah. Well, by the time I came back, when my mother brought me there and I could barely get out of the car, well, Carol, Fred said, you you were unrecognizable. I didn't even know it was you. Not only did you lose your hair, but you, you had no spirit left. She just nursed me back to health mentally. That's, that's what I saw as a person who had no spirit left, but... You found it somehow. It's yeah. just time. It's yeah. time and the side effects subside. Yeah. The body starts to heal and yeah. you get back to yourself. And yeah. I don't think a lot about the past of that, but mm -hmm. I know it's there because mm -hmm. also when I did uh, my show for Wellspring, which is, I think, a national cancer organization in Canada. I went to check out the facilities in the room and make sure the mic was okay. But I did that the day before and I checked out their facilities and they had an art room and they had a massage room and a therapy room for all the, you know, cancer patients. Uh, it's not a hospital, you know, it's one of those kind of community centers for cancer. And I started seeing a lot of women with the scarves on and good wigs and stuff. And it all came back with such a gush that I excused myself to the bathroom and I started to cry because I started to feel the pain all over again of what I went through. Mm. And then I had to put myself together and uh, come back out. And, you know, I didn't want to start crying there in front of her, although I think she kind of knew, but because I was going to be this beacon of strength telling this story in hopes of helping others. And that's one of the things that I always felt is because it reached out. I mean, I did people the 600 attendants at a time, big audiences mm -hmm. right across the country. Mm -hmm. And at the end, they would line up just to hug me and talk to me and share their story with me. And I knew I struck a chord. Not only did I make them laugh half the time, but I made them cry too. And I think crying's good. And I shared some of my stories of what happened afterwards and what's happened before and currently and what may happen in the future. And it, it all worked out for the best. And, and I had a second career with, from it too. Right. And your writing also led to these two TED Talks. How did that happen? Because of the nurse practitioner, Sherry Goldman, I wrote the story, The Magic Words. When I came back to Toronto, I went into therapy again with somebody and uh, she said, you know, you have these great stories, you should write them down. And so I wrote them down and I bring it back to her and she said, you should try and get this published. Look online for medical journals or stuff. So I started to do that and I found one called Cell to Soul, C-E-L-L, -L, numeric number two, soul, S-O-U-L. And it's run by a doctor named David Alpern. And I contacted him and I sent him my story of one moment in time, I think it was. And he never responded, felt rejected. And I contacted him like, I don't know, maybe six months later. And that took gut. I want to know why you didn't like my story. I wrote him an email. He says, what story? I sent you a story, blah, blah, blah. And he said, and resend it to me. And I sent it to him. He said, this is an amazing story. I love this story. Do you have anything else? And I said, I do. I have the story called The Magic Words. He said, send it to me. I said, well, it's really short. That's okay. And he loved it. He loved the magic words. And so he printed it. And I'm still, and I'm going through a different depression of adjusting back to Toronto. Not happy being back in Canada. Missing LA, missing United States. And I um, had an email from 
some guy, Rakesh Biswas, didn't know him, thought it was spam. I'm getting a massage. And my massage therapist, how are you doing? I said, oh, I'm not doing well. You know, I'm trying to get by, find my place. I got this weird email from some guy. I can't even pronounce his name. And he said something about a TED Talk. Like, what hoax is this? I didn't even know what a TED Talk was. She said, a TED Talk? I said, yeah, do you know what that is? She said, it's one of the biggest prestigious speaking circuits, Marla. You've got to answer him back. I said, really? She says, yes. So I went home and I answered him back. And I said, how do you know me? How did you find me? And he said, I read. I'm in India. I run a medical hospital. I'm the head teacher here, the professor. And I read your story. And I would like you to do a TED Talk on it. I said, what? what, what, what? You know, he says, read the link. This is what a TED Talk is. You have to get a camera. You have to do it. I don't expect you to fly here. So I recorded me doing this story for the TED Talk in India. That's and then fantastic. the speaking engagements led to somebody in the audience saying, I know someone who's organizing a TED Talk in Toronto. And that story about you one moment in time, that would be a great one. And so I submitted that and they said, absolutely. Just uh, contacting the medical journals. Also, that, that doctor in India, he just loved uh, the magic words so much from the nurse practitioner story that he said, do you have anything else? And I said, I've got this story called One Moment in Time about me and the radiation department and helping each other. And he loved it. And he says, I have a huge international medical magazine that everybody sees in the United States. I'd love to print this, but you have to put an abstract together. And I said, what's an abstract? He said, I'll teach you. <laughs> he taught me. He sent me links and stuff and coached me. And we never met, but we still write each other. And he got me, he got that published. And I actually had a letter from another doctor saying, I read your story and you've made me a better doctor because I'm a better human being for it. I can help my patients more compassionately. And that meant everything to me. And one thing led to another. And then there was Health Story Collaborative run by Dr. Annie Brewster. Mm -hmm. I contacted her and I sent her all the other ones that were already published. She said, I love them. It's okay to republish them. And do you have anything else? And I did. And I did the memoir of a chemo patient poem and all sorts of things. Also, Cell to Soul just kept printing my stuff. They loved the, uh, is there power in prayer? Anything that I wrote, he just loved. In fact, I did a piece for him on my keratosis pilaris on my arms. And he printed that because he runs another uh, dermatology magazine. <laughs> so I just kept writing stuff. And, and the thing about these doctors, which is very unusual, they respect the patient. They want to know things from the patient's point of view and work with that. And they really liked my stuff. These these are all run by doctors, <laughs> edited by doctors, published by doctors. And that's how I got all these things published. Not my memoir, though. I mean, look, this now this is true, too, because we only hear about the people who, you know, got their memoir published and it became a New York Times bestseller. But what about all the other people who submitted 200 times and, and it didn't happen? I mean, there's many more of those, but still, they did it. You know, it still meant something to them. It still got them through this and they were still able to share it with, you know, maybe a smaller group of people, but still it, it impacted and affected people. It did. And there's no doubt about it. It was a 
one of the most powerful things I've experienced and made having cancer and that really harsh journey worth it, mm-hmm. worth it. It really did. <laughs> the response of many publishers was, yeah, yeah, but nobody really wants to hear the story truth. of a female comedian <laughs> who gets breast cancer. Cut to United States, where two comedians got breast cancer and got a book deal and a movie deal right away. So again, I came back to the wrong country. <laughs> now, where are you at today? Well, today I am, am I one and a half years? It was February where I was diagnosed for the second time in 2019. Mm. So, no, it's two years. Yeah. You found or they found a, another lump? This time breast? the mammo saw something, and I get mm. a mammo every year, as I recommend people to do. And I get an ultrasound, and the ultrasound clearly saw it. Mm-hmm. The mammogram saw something, and the ultrasound confirmed it. And then I had a biopsy. The lumpectomy wasn't offered. Everything's different here. They did a needle core biopsy, and I said, Mm. take five samples. Don't take one. I I want this. Here's the interesting thing about my biopsy back in L.A., Mm -hmm. my lumpectomy. My surgeon said, I'm really glad that you chose to have the lumpectomy because in dissecting your tumor, half of it was fatty tissue. And if we had done the needle core biopsy, we might have gotten only the fatty tissue and not, it wasn't, sorry, it wasn't just fatty tissue. It was, yeah. part of it was benign and part of it was malignant. You're right, and he right. said, it's really good that we took the entire area, which was mm-hmm. a small area, uh, because it it's not always just as you want it to be. Half of it is this and half of it is this. Mm-hmm. And they got the whole thing and it was a good decision and here they just do the needle core biopsy and then you have to make your decisions and this time it was malignant again with the same type of cancer with the same characteristics with the same score interesting intermediate to advanced and and the option the only option because of everything that i had gone through was mastectomy Mm. and that wasn't okay with me And they just kept saying, well, that's standard treatment for your situation of a recurrence in the same breast. And I said, well, what what does standard mean? And they said, well, standard means we don't take into consideration all the aspects of people's cases. This is just the standard treatment. And I said, well, what if you did take into consideration every aspect of my case? Well, it's up to you. If you don't want the mastectomy, you can get a lumpectomy. And because you've had too much radiation, it's dangerous to have radiation, although the radiation oncologist wants you to have radiation, but it's experimental at this point, and only five people have done it because it brings on other cancers that are not curable. I said, okay, so I don't think that's going to work for me. And uh, I want my breast. And uh, I started to do my own research, and the percentages weren't as impressive because you can have a mastectomy and still have the cancer come back. It'll just come back mm-hmm. in another area nearby. And so it's not a guarantee. So wanted year, to take that chance. So a year and a half ago, you went against them and you had a lumpectomy and no radiation and no chemo this time. No chemo was offered because they couldn't get a lymph node to see if it was anywhere. I did have scans on my body. Nothing was growing, but they... They needed lymph node material, and they did a test on me that wasn't very pleasant, I have to say. 
and the lymph nodes didn't light up the way they were supposed to. And strangely enough, a whole bunch of them lit up in the center of my chest, but for some reason, they don't deal with the lymph nodes in the center of the chest, but they can be the deciding factor in my life. When they light up, it means there may be cancer filters. I'm like, okay, whatever. I can't fight the system all the time. I opted just to have the lumpectomy, and then they wanted to do hormone treatment to kill all my hormones. And I said, I'm already menopausal. Like, I have a little bit left, like, to live on, you know, to make me still be a woman, you know. <laughs> so, like, uh, so I turned that down, too, because there's so many side effects with these. It, it, like, I already have osteoporosis that nobody can figure out because I'm high-impact active and drink lots of milk and dairy and all that stuff. And I, if I had the hormone-killing drugs, I would have worse bone loss, hot flashes again, Etc. Etc. Everything's get worse. More facial hair. You know, it would be a nightmare. And it's like, you know what? I'm 65. Let me live out my life with the still looking like barely the person I want to look like. <laughs> and <laughs> and I left it at that. So you're feeling great. You're doing great. I feel overweight. <laughs> I have a wonderful girlfriend. Mm. So I feel emotionally content in my life. I'm, and there's a big age difference in our relationship too which is amazing. Like she doesn't care that I have a wrinkle. She doesn't care that I have gray hair. She doesn't care. And, but I'm content. I wished I was thinner, but when you get to my age, some people gain weight and I'm one of those people. That's amazing because then you found a new facet to your career, which was being a live jazz singer in, in clubs and lounges. That was an amazing turn of events. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. I didn't see that coming. And it became a huge thing because once again, I combined my comedy mm -hmm. with my voice work and combined it into this nightclub act mm -hmm. where I could sing American jazz standards and entertain. So some people would say, you're not even a jazz singer. You're an entertainer. Mm. And I would do two or three hours, you know, if it was three sets or two sets in a nightclub and so it was right up my alley and it was very exciting and made me feel good about myself as well and so, and there were some more articles again and i don't think there's anything left for me to do this is amazing you're you're obviously a, a creative uh, spirit and that seems to keep pulling you through the one thing that i am always impressed about you is that you're an incredible advocate for yourself, that you mm. don't, that this is what I've learned from you, is you don't take what anyone says as the gospel, that you challenge them, that you ask questions, that you don't just accept the facts and figures that they're giving you, that you go to the internet that you or wherever and, and you do your own research and you, you know, and you come back to them and you tell them, your truth, that's very integral to who you are and amazing part of your survival. Thank and you. And, yeah. and I agree with you. Uh, mm -hmm. Most people just do as they're told. They don't ask a lot of questions and uh, they're intimidated by the doctors. And the doctors have an attitude much like the UK. They have the same socialist mm -hmm. medical care that there's this hierarchy, this omnipotence. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've had several doctors even recently, hmm. to say to me when I've said something, well, I think it's this because I know my body. And they said, did you go to medical school? <laughs> no, no, you didn't, did you? I went to medical school for years. So I think I know more than you. And I actually would say to these doctors, 
I've been living in my body for 64 years. So I know my dog, my body better than you. Yeah. And I know when something's funky and yeah. something's funky. You yeah. think I enjoy coming to these appointments? I don't. <laughs> I don't want to see you. I don't need the attention. And that's but I, not... I never had that. Anybody yeah. say that to me. In LA, my doctors, I really lucked out. But, mm. you know, Dr. Anishak said to me, there's no wrong questions. There's only wrong answers and doctors give them. Mm. So keep asking. So to wind this all up, what would you impart on people? That's you've learned the most, and that's the most important to, to go through something like this and survive it, and you know, come out the other side. Well, one of the things is, I'm not saying you should laugh at everything because half the time I was a mess. But uh, if you, well, people used to ask me, "Do you use your humor to cope?" And I said, mm. "I don't. I, it's an innate sense of myself." So things would happen they were worth laughing about and mm. when people would interview me they said even in cancer I said even in cancer for instance totally when my um, oncologist said we have to give you this aggressive chemo but there's some side effects and some will happen and some won't happen but i have to tell you what they are mm. so i wrote them down you so i said okay he said okay mm. here they are you're definitely going to go into chemically induced menopause you might become sterile you will become nauseous you will lose your hair all over most of your body. You will get mouth sores, anal sores, bleeding gums, bleeding nose. Your white cell count will drop. You may get infections. You will gain weight. You might get uterine cancer, leukemia, cervical cancer, and there may be permanent heart damage. And my response was, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, doc. Did you say I was going to gain weight? Because <laughs> I'm really upset now. No, Marla, I know that, you know, having cancer is a very overwhelming. No, no, it's not the cancer. I thought I was going to lose weight. That would make it all worthwhile. <laughs> it's that you just told me I'm going to get fat. This is upsetting. <laughs> and that's usually the highlight of my shows. And that's what I want to bring it all to is honest. That's honest. Mm -hmm. That's realism. <laughs> that's not forced humor that really happened yeah yeah and, and I, I, yeah I'm, I'm i'm with you uh when i look at what has gotten through me through life and through the hardships it's having a sense of humor it's 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 sometimes it's a defense and uh other times it's just you got to look at things and laugh because Otherwise, you want to kill yourself. Life is life is rough. What are you going to do? Right. But I'm not saying you have to have a sense of humor. I'm just saying sometimes in the journey, there is also. Mm. It's not instead of. Mm -hmm. It's not the coping. It's mm -hmm. not. I mean, I would never tell somebody who's just lost their family because a, a drunk male yeah. driver smashed no. into them and said, just have a sense of humor. No. But no. I would say, I would say, be real. Mm. Be honest with yourself. Be open with people, be sharing with mm. people, inform yourself. I say to everybody that I've ever right. spoken to, yes. knowledge is power. And they still say, I don't want to read about it. I said, okay, I just want to leave this with you. Knowledge is power. It really is. And that's all. Just help each other. Help each other with one moment in time. One moment can change somebody's life. This is a fantastic place to wrap this up. Marla, that's an incredible message. And thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's 
It's really enjoyable talking to you, Ken. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to Frankly Kev and spending some time with myself and my special guest, Marla Lukowski. If you'd like to find out more about Marla and some of the topics we discussed, you can find links on the I'm Still Here and So Is My Hair episode page on the FranklyKev.com website. There's a comment box there for you to fill in if you'd like to let us know your thoughts about the episode, write a review, or even ask a question. More episodes can be heard on the FranklyKev.com website, also on Anchor.com, and on other podcast apps and websites around the internet. And if you'd like to help independent artists like myself bring you the content you want to hear, then go to the donate page at FranklyKev.com. Every dollar counts, and your donation is greatly appreciated. If you have a story you'd like to share that you feel others may benefit from hearing and want to be a guest on the show, then go to the contact page at FranklyKev.com and fill out the form. Or you can email us directly at Kev at FranklyKev.com. Thanks again for joining us. And remember, live simply, dream big, be kind. Love hard and laugh often. It may not be original, but it is true. You take care. Until next time.